Section six of Reminiscences of Captain Grano. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ruth Golding. Reminiscences of Captain Grano by Captain Rhys Howell Grano. Section six. Coaching and Racing in eighteen fifteen. Stagecoaches, or four-in-hand teams, were introduced in Paris in 1815 by Captain Bacon, of the Tenth Hussars, afterwards a general in the Portuguese service, Sir Charles Smith, Mr. Rolls, the brewer, and Arnold of the Tenth. They used to meet opposite Demidoff's house, afterwards the Café de Paris, and drive to the Boulevard Beaumarchais, and then back again, proceeding to the then unfinished Arc du Triomphe. Crowds assembled to witness the departure of the teams, and it created no little amusement to the Parisian to see, perched upon Sir C. Smith's coach, one or two smartly dressed ladies who appeared quite at home. Sir Charles was likewise a great supporter of the turf, and was the first man who brought over from England thoroughbred horses. By his indefatigable energy, he contrived to get up very fair racing in the neighbourhood of Valenciennes, his trainer at this time being Tom Hurst, who is now, I believe, at Chantilly, and all the officers of our several cavalry and infantry regiments contributed their efforts to make these races respectable in the eyes of foreigners. Be this as it may, they were superior to those in the Champ de Mar, though under the patronage of the king. I shall not forget the first time I witnessed racing in Paris, for it was more like a review of gendarmes and national guards. The course was kept by a forest of bayonets, while mounted police galloped after the running horses, and in some instances reached the goal before them. The Duc d'Angoulême, with the Duc de Guiche and the Prefet, were present, but there was only one small stand, opposite to a sentry-box where the judge was placed. The running, to say the least of it, was ridiculous. Horses and riders fell, and the fete, as it was called, ended with a flourish of trumpets. Wonderful changes have taken place since that time, and at the Bois de Boulogne and at Chantilly may be seen running equal to that of our best races in England, and our neighbours produce horses bred in France that can carry off some of the great prizes in our own Isthmian games. Parisian Cafés in 1815 At the present day, Paris may be said to be a city of cafés and restaurants. The railroads and steamboats enable the rich of every quarter of the globe to reach the most attractive of all European cities with comparative economy and facility. All foreigners arriving in Paris seem by instinct to rush to the restaurateurs, where strangers may be counted by tens of thousands. It is not surprising that we find in every important street these gaudy modern triclinia, which, I should observe, are as much frequented by a certain class of French people as by foreigners, for Paris is proverbially fond of dining out. In fact, the social intercourse may be said to take place more frequently in the public café than under the domestic roof. In 1815 I need scarcely remark that the condition of the roads in Europe 
and the enormous expense of travelling, made a visit to Paris a journey which could only be indulged in by a very limited and wealthy class of strangers. Hotels and cafés were then neither so numerous nor so splendid as at the present day. Maurice's hotel was a very insignificant establishment in the Rue de l'Echiquier, and in the Rue de la Paix, at that time unfinished, there were but two or three hotels, which would not be considered even second-rate at the present time. The site of the Maison Dorée, at the corner of the Rue Lafitte, was then occupied by a shabby building, which went by the name of the Hôtel d'Angleterre, and was kept by the popular and once beautiful Madame Dunant. The most celebrated restaurant was that of Beauvilliers in the Rue de Richelieu. Mirrors and a little gilding were the decorative characteristics of this house. The cuisine was far superior to that of any restaurateur of our day, and the wines were first-rate. Beauvilliers was also celebrated for his suprême de volaille and for his côtelette à la soubise. The company consisted of the most distinguished men of Paris. Here were to be seen Chateaubriand, Bailly de Ferrette, the Dukes of Fitzjames, Rochefoucauld, and Gramont, and many other remarkable personages. It was the custom to go to the theatres after dinner, and then to the Salon des Etrangers, which was the Parisian Crockford's. Another famous dining-house was the Rocher de Cancaille in the Rue Mondard, kept by Borel, formerly one of the cooks of Napoleon. Here the cuisine was so refined that people were reported to have come over from England expressly for the purpose of enjoying it. Indeed, Borel once showed me a list of his customers, amongst whom I found the names of Robespierre, Charles James Fox, and the Duke of Bedford. In the Palais Royal, the still well-known Trois Frères Provençaux was in vogue, and frequented much by the French officers, being celebrated chiefly for its wines and its Provence dishes. It was in the Palais Royal that General Lannes, Junot, Murat, and other distinguished officers used to meet Bonaparte, just before and during the consulate. But the cafés, with the exception of the Mille Colonnes, were not nearly so smartly fitted up as they now are. The Café Turc, on the boulevard du Temple, latterly visited chiefly by shopkeepers, was much frequented. Smoking was not allowed, and then, as now, ladies were seen here, more especially when the theatres had closed. Review of the Allied Armies by the Allied Sovereigns in Paris In July 1815 it was agreed by the sovereigns of Russia, Austria, Prussia, Bavaria, Württemberg, and a host of petty German powers who had become wonderfully courageous and enthusiastically devoted to England a few hours after the Battle of Waterloo, that a grand review should be held on the plains of Saint-Denis, where the whole of the Allied forces were to meet. Accordingly, at an early hour on a fine summer morning, there were seen, issuing from the various roads which centre on the plains of Saint-Denis, numerous English, Russian, Prussian, and Austrian regiments of horse and foot, in heavy marching order, with their bands playing, and finally a mass of men 
numbering not less than two hundred thousand, took up their positions on the wide-spreading field. About twelve o'clock, the Duke of Wellington, commander-in-chief of the Allied army, approached, mounted on a favourite charger, and strange as it may appear, on his right was observed a lady in a plain riding-habit, who was no other than Lady Shelley, the wife of the late Sir John Shelley. Immediately behind the Duke followed the emperors of Austria and Russia, the kings of Prussia, Holland, Bavaria and Württemberg, several German princes and general officers, the whole forming one of the most illustrious and numerous staffs ever brought together. The Duke of Wellington, thus accompanied, took up his position, and began manoeuvring with a facility and confidence which elicited the admiration of all the experienced soldiers around him. Being on duty near his grace, I had an opportunity of hearing Prince Schwarzenberg say to the Duke, "'You are the only man who can so well play at this game.' The review lasted two hours. Then the men marching home to their quarters through a crowd of spectators which included the whole population of Paris, the most mournful silence was observed throughout on the part of the French. Conduct of the Russian and Prussian soldiers during the occupation of Paris by the Allies It is only just to say that the moderation shown by the British army, from the Duke of Wellington down to the private soldier, during our occupation of Paris, contrasted most favourably with that of the Russian and Prussian military. Whilst we simply did our duty, and were civil to all those with whom we came in contact, the Russians and Prussians were frequently most insubordinate, and never lost an opportunity of insulting a people whose armies had almost always defeated them on the day of battle. I remember one particular occasion when the Emperor of Russia reviewed his Garde Imperiale, that the Cossacks actually charged the crowd, and inflicted wounds on the unarmed and inoffensive spectators. I recollect, too, a Prussian regiment displaying its bravery in the Rue Saint-Honoré, on a number of hackney coachmen. Indeed, scarcely a day passed without outrages being committed by the Russian and Prussian soldiers on the helpless population of the lower orders. The British Embassy in Paris England was represented at this period by Sir Charles Stuart, who was one of the most popular ambassadors Great Britain ever sent to Paris. He made himself acceptable to his countrymen and paid as much attention to individual interests as to the more weighty duties of state. His attaché, as is always the case, took their tone and manner from their chief, and were not only civil and agreeable to all those who went to the embassy, but knew everything and everybody, and were of great use to the ambassador, keeping him well supplied with information on whatever event might be taking place. The British Embassy, in those days, was a centre where you were sure to find all the English gentlemen in Paris collected from time to time. Dinners, balls, and receptions were given with profusion throughout the season. In fact, Sir Charles spent the whole of his private income in these noble hospitalities. 
England was then represented, as it always should be in France, by an ambassador who worthily expressed the intelligence, the amiability, and the wealth of the great country to which he belonged. At the present day, the British Embassy emulates the solitude of a monastic establishment, with the exception, however, of that hospitality and courtesy which the traveller and stranger were wont to experience even in monasteries. ESCAPE OF LA VALETTE FROM PRISON Few circumstances created a greater sensation than the escape of La Valette from the conciergerie, after he had been destined by the French government to give employment to the guillotine. The means by which the prisoner avoided his fate and disappointed his enemies produced a deep respect for the English character, and led the French to believe that, however much the governments of France and England might be disposed to foster feelings either of friendship or of enmity, individuals could entertain the deepest sense of regard for each other, and that a chivalrous feeling of honour would urge them on to the exercise of the noblest feelings of our nature. This incident likewise had a salutary influence in preventing acts of cruelty and of bloodshed, which were doubtless contemplated by those in power. Lavalette had been, under the imperial government, head of the post-office, which place he filled on the return of the Bourbons, and when the Emperor Napoleon arrived from Elba, he continued still to be thus employed. Doubtless on all occasions when opportunity presented itself, he did all in his power to serve his great master, to whom, indeed, he was allied by domestic ties, having married into the Beauharnais family. When Louis Eighteenth returned to Paris after the Battle of Waterloo, La Valette and the unfortunate Marshal Ney were singled out as traitors to the Bourbon cause, and tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. The 26th of December was the day fixed for the execution of La Valette, a man of high respectability and of great connections, whose only fault was fidelity to his chief. On the evening of the 21st, Madame La Valette, accompanied by her daughter and her governess Madame du Toit, a lady of seventy years of age, presented herself at the conciergerie to take a last farewell of her husband. She arrived at the prison in a sedan chair. On this very day the procureur-général had given an order that no one should be admitted without an order signed by himself. The greffier having, however, on previous occasions, been accustomed to receive Madame la Valette with the two ladies, who now sought also to enter the cell, did not object to it. So these three ladies proposed to take coffee with la Valette. The under-jailer was sent to a neighbouring café to obtain it, and during his absence la Valette exchanged dresses with his wife. He managed to pass undetected out of the prison, accompanied by his daughter, and entered the chair in which Madame Lavalette had arrived, which, owing to the management of a faithful valet, had been placed so that no observation could be made of the person entering it. The bearers found the chair somewhat heavier than usual, but were ignorant of the change that had taken place, and were glad to find, after proceeding a short distance, that the individual within preferred walking home, 
and giving up the sedan to the young lady. On the greffier entering the cell, he quickly discovered the ruse and gave the alarm. The under-jailer was dispatched to stop the chair, but he was too late. Lavalette had formed a friendship with a young Englishman of the name of Bruce, to whom he immediately had recourse, throwing himself upon his generosity and kind feeling for protection, which was unhesitatingly afforded. But as Bruce could do nothing alone, he consulted two English friends who had shown considerable sympathy for the fate of Marshal Ney, men of liberal principles and undoubted honour, and both of them officers in the British service. These were Captain Hutchinson and General Sir Robert Wilson. To the latter was committed the most difficult task, that of conveying out of France the condemned prisoner. But for this achievement few men were better fitted than Sir Robert Wilson, a man of fertile imagination, ready courage, great assurance, and singular power of command over others who spoke French well, and was intimately acquainted with the military habits of different nations. Sir Robert Wilson's career was a singular one. He had commenced life an ardent enemy of Bonaparte, and it was upon his evidence, collected in Egypt and published to the world, that the great general was, for a long time, believed to have poisoned his wounded soldiers at Jaffa. Afterwards he was attached to the Allied sovereigns in their great campaign, but upon his arrival in Paris his views of public affairs became suddenly changed. He threw off the yoke of preconceived opinions, became an ardent liberal, and so continued to the last hours of his life. The cause of this sudden change of opinion has never been thoroughly known, but certain it is that on every occasion he supported liberal opinions with a firmness and courage that astonished those who had known him in his earlier days. Sir Robert undertook, in the midst of great dangers and difficulties, to convey Lavalette out of France. Having dressed him in the uniform of an English officer, and obtained a passport under a feigned name, he took him in a cabriolet past the barriers as far as Compiègne, where a carriage was waiting for them. They passed through sundry examinations at the fortified towns, but fortunately escaped. The great difficulty being that, owing to Lavalette's having been the director of the posts, his countenance was familiar to almost all the postmasters who supplied relays of horses. At Cambrai three hours were lost from the gates being shut, and at Valenciennes they underwent three examinations, but eventually they got out of France. The police, however, became acquainted with the fact that Lavalette had been concealed in the Rue de Helde for three days at the apartments of Mr. Bruce, and this enabled them to trace all the circumstances, showing that it was at the apartments of Hutchinson that Lavalette had changed his dress, and that he had remained there the night before he quitted Paris. The consequence was that Sir Robert Wilson, Bruce and Hutchinson were tried for aiding the escape of a prisoner, and each of them was condemned to three months' imprisonment. The under-jailer, who had evidently been well paid for services rendered, had two years' confinement allotted to him. I went to see Sir Robert Wilson during his stay in the conciergerie, 
a punishment not very difficult to bear, but which marked him as a popular hero for his life. A circumstance I remember made a strong impression on me, proving that, however great may be the courage of a man in trying circumstances, a trifling incident might severely shake his nerves. I was accompanied by a favourite dog of the Countess of Oxford, who, not being aware of the high character of Sir Robert, or dissatisfied with his physiognomy, or for some good canine reason, took a sudden antipathy, and inserted his teeth into a somewhat fleshy part, but without doing much injury. The effect, however, on the general was extraordinary. He was most earnest to have the dog killed. But, being certain that the animal was in no way diseased, I avoided obeying his wishes, and fear that I thus lost the good graces of the worthy man. Duelling in France in 1815 When the restoration of the Bourbons took place, a variety of circumstances combined to render duelling so common that scarcely a day passed without one at least of these hostile meetings. Amongst the French themselves there were two parties always ready to distribute to each other des coups d'épée, the officers of Napoleon's army and the Bourbonist officers of the Garde du Corps. Then again there was the irritating presence of the English, Russian, Prussian and Austrian officers in the French capital. In the duels between these soldiers and the French, the latter were always the aggressors. At Tortoni's on the boulevards, there was a room set apart for such quarrelsome gentlemen, where, after these meetings, they indulged in riotous champagne breakfasts. At this café might be seen all the most notorious duellists, amongst whom I can call to mind an Irishman in the Garde du Corps, W., who was a most formidable fire-eater. The number of duels in which he had been engaged would seem incredible in the present day. He is said to have killed nine of his opponents in one year. The Marquis de H., descended of an ancient family in Brittany, also in the Garde du Corps, likewise fought innumerable duels, killing many of his antagonists. I have heard that on entering the army he was not of a quarrelsome disposition, but was laughed at and bullied into fighting by his brother officers, and like a wild beast that had once smelt blood, from the day of his first duel he took a delight in such fatal scenes, being ever ready to rush at and quarrel with any one. The Marquis has now, I am glad to say, subsided into a very quiet, placable and peacemaking old gentleman, but at the time I speak of he was much blamed for his duel with F., a young man of nineteen. While dining at a café he exclaimed, "'J'ai envie de tuer quelqu'un!' and rushed out into the street and to the theatres, trying to pick a quarrel but he was so well known that no one was found willing to encounter him. At last, at the Théâtre de la Porte Saint-Martin, he grossly insulted this young man, who was, I think, an élève of the École Polytechnique, and a duel took place under the lamp-post near the theatre, with swords. He ran F. through the body, and left him dead upon the ground. The late Marshal St. A. and General J. were great duellists at this time, with a whole host of others whose names I forget. The meetings generally took place in the Bois de Pologne, 
and the favourite weapon of the French was the small sword or the sabre. But foreigners, in fighting with the French, who were generally capital swordsmen, availed themselves of the use of pistols. The ground for a duel with pistols was marked out by indicating two spots, which were twenty-five paces apart. The seconds then generally proceeded to toss up who should have the first shot, when the principals were placed, and the word was given to fire. The Café Foix in the Palais Royal was the principal place of rendezvous for the Prussian officers, and to this café the French officers on half-pay frequently proceeded, in order to pick quarrels with their foreign invaders. Swords were quickly drawn, and frequently the most bloody frays took place. These originated not in any personal hatred, but from national jealousy on the part of the French, who could not bear the sight of foreign soldiers in their capital, which, ruled by the great captain of the age, had, like Rome, influenced the rest of the world. On one occasion our guards, who were on duty at the Palais Royal, were called out to put an end to one of these encounters, in which fourteen Prussians and ten Frenchmen were either killed or wounded. The French took every opportunity of insulting the English, and very frequently, I am sorry to say, those insults were not met in a manner to do honour to our character. Our countrymen in general were very pacific, but the most awkward customer the French ever came across was my fellow-countryman, the late gallant Colonel Sir Charles S. of the Engineers, who was ready for them with anything, sword, pistols, sabre, or fists, he was good at all, and though never seeking a quarrel, he would not put up with the slightest insult. He killed three Frenchmen in Paris, in quarrels forced upon him. I remember, in October 1815, being asked by a friend to dine at Beauvilliers, in the Rue Richelieu, when Sir Charles S., who was well known to us, occupied a table at the farther end of the room. About the middle of the dinner we heard a most extraordinary noise, and on looking up perceived that it arose from S.'s table. He was engaged in beating the head of a smartly dressed gentleman with one of the long French loaves, so well known to all who have visited France. Upon asking the reason of such rough treatment on the part of our countrymen, he said he would serve all Frenchmen in the same manner if they insulted him. The offence, it seems, proceeded from the person who had just been chastised in so summary a manner. He had stared and laughed at S., in a rude way, for having ordered three bottles of wine to be placed upon his table. The upshot of all this was a duel, which took place next day at a place near Vincennes, and in which S. shot the unfortunate jester. When Sir Charles returned to Valenciennes, where he commanded the engineers, he found on his arrival a French officer waiting to avenge the death of his relation, who had only been shot ten days before at Vincennes. They accordingly fought, before S. had time to even shave himself or eat his breakfast, he having only just arrived in his coupé from Paris. The meeting took place in the fosse of the fortress, and the first shot from S.'s pistol killed the French officer, who had actually travelled in the diligence from Paris for the purpose, as he boasted to his fellow-travellers, 
of killing an Englishman. I recollect dining in 1816 at Hervey Aston's at the Hotel Breteuil in the Rue de Rivoli, opposite the Tuileries, where I met Seymour Bathurst and Captain E. of the Artillery, a very good-looking man. After dinner, Mrs. Aston took us as far as Tortoni's on her way to the opera. On entering the café, Captain E. did not touch his hat, according to the custom of the country, but behaved himself, a la John Bull, in a noisy and swaggering manner, upon which General, then Colonel, J., went up to E. and knocked off his hat, telling him that he hoped he would in future behave himself better. Aston, Bathurst, and I waited for some time, expecting to see E. knock J. down, or at all events give him his card, as a preliminary to a hostile meeting, on receiving such an insult. But he did nothing. We were very much disgusted and annoyed at a countryman's behaving in such a manner, and after a meeting at my lodgings, we recommended Captain E., in the strongest terms, to call out Colonel J., but he positively refused to do so, as he said it was against his principles. This specimen of the white feather astonished us beyond measure. Captain E., shortly after, received orders to start for India, where I believe he died of cholera, in all probability of funk. I do not think that Colonel J. would altogether have escaped with impunity, after such a gratuitous insult to an English officer, but he retired into the country almost immediately after the incident at Tortoni's, and could not be found. There were many men in our army who did not thus disgrace the British uniform when insulted by the French. I cannot omit the names of my old friends Captain Burgess, Mike Fitzgerald, Charles Hesser, and Thoroton, each of whom, by their willingness to resent gratuitous offences, showed that insults to Englishmen were not to be committed with impunity. The last-named officer, having been grossly insulted by Marshal V, without giving him the slightest provocation, knocked him down. This circumstance caused a great sensation in Paris, and brought about a court of inquiry, which ended in the acquittal of Captain Thoroton. My friend B, though he had only one leg, was a good swordsman, and contrived to kill a man at Lyon who had jeered him about the loss of his limb at Waterloo. My old and esteemed friend Mike Fitzgerald, son of Lord Edward and the celebrated Pamela, was always ready to measure swords with the Frenchman, and after a brawl at Silver's, the then fashionable Bonapartist café, at the corner of the Rue Lafitte and the Boulevard, in which two of our Scotch countrymen showed the white feather, he and another officer placed their own cards over the chimney-piece in the principal room of the café, offering to fight any man, or number of men, for the frequent public insult offered to Britons. This challenge, however, was never answered. A curious duel took place at Beauvais during the occupation of France by our army. A Captain B., of one of our cavalry regiments, quartered in that town, was insulted by a French officer. B. demanded satisfaction, which was accepted. But the Frenchman would not fight with pistols. B. would not fight with swords. So at last it was agreed that they should fight on horseback, with lances. 
the duel took place in the neighbourhood of Beauvais, and a crowd assembled to witness it. B. received three wounds, but by a lucky prod eventually killed his man. B. was a fine-looking man and a good horseman. My late friend, the Baron de P., so well known in Parisian circles, was second to the Frenchman on this occasion. A friend of mine, certainly not of a quarrelsome turn, but considered by his friends, on the contrary, as rather a good-natured man, had three duels forced upon him in the course of a few weeks. He had formed a liaison with a person whose extraordinary beauty got him into several scrapes and disputes. In January 1817, a few days after this acquaintance had been formed, Jack B., well known at that time in the best society in London, became madly in love with the fair lady, and attempted one night to enter her private box at Drury Lane. This my friend endeavoured to prevent. Violent language was used, and a duel was the consequence. The parties met a few miles from London, in a field close to the Uxbridge Road, where B., who was a hot-tempered man, did his best to kill my friend. But after the exchange of two shots, without injury to either party, they were separated by their seconds. B. was the son of Lady Bridget B., and the seconds were Payne, uncle to George Payne, and Colonel Jodrell of the Guards. Soon after this incident, my friend accompanied the lady to Paris, where they took up their residence at Meurice's, in the Rue de l'Echiquier. The day after their arrival they went out to take a walk in the Palais Royal, and were followed by a half-pay officer of Napoleon's army, Colonel D., a notorious duellist, who observed to the people about him that he was going to bully un Anglais. This man was exceedingly rude in his remarks, uttered in a loud voice, and after every sort of insult expressed in words, he had the impudence to put his arm round the lady's waist. My friend indignantly asked the colonel what he meant, upon which the ruffian spat in my friend's face. But he did not get off with impunity, for my friend, who had a crab-stick in his hand, caught him a blow on the side of the head which dropped him. The Frenchman jumped up and rushed at the Englishman, but they were separated by the bystanders. Cards were exchanged, and a meeting was arranged to take place the next morning in the neighbourhood of Fassy. When my friend, accompanied by his second, Captain H. of the 18th, came upon the ground, he found the colonel boasting of the number of officers of all nations whom he had killed, and saying, I'll now complete my list by killing an Englishman. Mon petit tir aura bientôt ton compte, car je tire fort bien. My friend quietly said, Je ne tire pas mal non plus, and took his place. The colonel, who seems to have been a horrible ruffian, after a good deal more swaggering and bravado, placed himself opposite, and, on the signal being given, the colonel's ball went through my friend's whiskers, whilst his ball pierced his adversary's heart, who fell dead without a groan. This duel made much noise in Paris, and the survivor left immediately for Chantilly, where he passed some time. On his return to Paris, the second of the man who had been killed, Commander P., 
insulted and challenged my friend. A meeting was accordingly agreed upon, and pistols were again the weapons used. Again my friend won the toss, and told his second, Captain H., that he would not kill his antagonist, though he richly deserved death for wishing to take the life of a person who had never offended him, but that he would give him a lesson which he should remember. My friend accordingly shot his antagonist in the knee, and I remember to have seen him limping about the streets of Paris twenty years after this event. When the result of this second duel was known, not less than eleven challenges from Bonapartists were received by the gentleman in question. But any further encounters were put a stop to by the Minister of War, or the Duke d'Angoulême, I forget which, who threatened to place the officers under arrest if they followed up this quarrel any further. When the news reached England, the Duke of York said that my friend could not have acted otherwise than he had done in the first duel, considering the gross provocation that he had received, but he thought it would have been better if the second duel had been avoided. In the deeds I have narrated, the English seem to have had the advantage, but many others took place in which Englishmen were killed or wounded. These I have not mentioned, as their details do not recur to my memory, but I do not remember a single occasion on which Frenchmen were not the aggressors. At a somewhat later period than this, the present Marquis of H., then Lord B., had a duel with the son of the Bonapartist General L. General S. was Lord B.'s second, and the principals exchanged several shots without injury to either party. This duel, like the preceding, originated with the Frenchman, who insulted the Englishman at the Théâtre Français in the most unprovoked manner. At the present day, our fiery neighbours are much more amenable to reason, and if you are but civil, they will be civil to you. Duels, consequently, are of rare occurrence. Let us hope that the frequency and the animus displayed in these hostile meetings originated in national wounded vanity rather than in personal animosity. In the autumn of 1821 I was living in Paris when my old friend H., adjutant of the first foot guards, called upon me, and requested that I would be his second in a duel with Mr. N., an officer in the same regiment. After hearing what he had to say, and thinking I could serve him, I consented. It was agreed by Captain F. R.N. of Pitmore, Mr. N.'s second, that the duel should take place in the Bois de Boulogne. After an exchange of shots, Captain F. and myself put an end to the duel. The cause of the quarrel was that Mr. N., now Lord G., proclaimed in the presence of Captain H. and other officers that a lady, the wife of a brother officer, was what she ought not to be. When the report reached the ear of the Colonel, His Royal Highness the Duke of York requested Mr. N. to leave the regiment, or be brought to a court-martial, and then the duel took place, happily without bloodshed. Both of the officers, it need scarcely be stated, behaved with courage and coolness. Pistol-shooting From 1820 to 1830, pistol-shooting was not much practised. One evening, in the Salon des Etrangers, I was introduced to General F., 
a very great duellist, and the terror of every regiment he commanded. He was considered by Napoleon to be one of his best cavalry officers, but was never in favour, in consequence of his duelling propensities. It was currently reported that F., in a duel with a very young officer, lost his toss, and his antagonist fired first at him, when, finding he had not been touched, he deliberately walked close up to the young man, saying, Je plains ta mère, and shot him dead. But there were some doubts of the truth of this story, and I trust, for the honour of humanity, that it was either an invention or a gross exaggeration. The night I was introduced to F., I was told to be on my guard, as he was a dangerous character. He was very fond of practising with pistols, and I frequently met him at La Page's, the only place at that time where gentlemen used to shoot. F., in the year 1822, was very corpulent, and wore an enormous cravat, in order, it was said, to hide two scars received in battle. He was a very slow shot. The famous Junot, Governor-General of Paris, whom I never saw, was considered to be the best shot in France. My quick shooting surprised the habitué at Le Page, where we fired at a spot chalked on the figure of a Cossack, painted on a board, and by word of command, one, two, three. F, upon my firing and hitting the mark forty times in succession, at the distance of twenty paces, shrieked out, Tonnerre de Dieu, c'est magnifique! We were ever afterwards on good terms, and supped frequently together at the salon. At Manton's on one occasion I hit the wafer nineteen times out of twenty. When my battalion was on duty at the Tower in 1819, it happened to be very cold, and much snow covered the parade and trees. For our amusement it was proposed to shoot at the sparrows in the trees from Lady Jane Grey's room, and it fell to my lot to bag eleven without missing one. This, I may say, without flattering myself, was considered the best pistol-shooting ever heard of. Manton assigned, as the reason why pistols had become the usual arms for duels, the story, now universally laughed at, of Sheridan and Captain Matthews fighting with swords on the ground, and mangling each other in a frightful way. These combatants narrated their own story, but its enormous exaggeration has been proved even on Sheridan's own evidence, and the blood that poured from him seems merely to have been the excellent claret of the previous night's debauch. The number of wounds said to have been inflicted on each other was something so incredible that nothing but the solemn asseverations of the parties could have gained belief, and in those days Sheridan had not obtained that reputation for rodomontade which he afterwards enjoyed by universal consent. End of section 6 Recording by Ruth Golding